At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. If you have a Bible and you found Matthew 18, if not, I'd encourage you to do so uh, as we jump into this passage and study it together. So uh, the rise of social media in the last decade has uh, led to kind of a cultural phenomenon in the way in which we as a society deal with um, holding people accountable for certain things. Uh, The label that's often given to it is cancel culture. And with the ability for people almost instantaneously and widespread to give their uh, opinions on almost anything, Um, it can be very easy for uh, people to kind of collectively garner attention towards certain indiscretions, mistakes, sins, and to call for people to be removed from public life or public influence. Uh, And, you know, it's, um, it's been one of those things, it's kind of debated a little bit within our culture, whether that's a positive thing or a negative thing. Uh, In 2021, Pew Research actually did uh, a study around cancel culture, and what they found was that uh, most people in our society uh, were divided in terms of whether they saw this reality as a positive or a negative. Some people saw it as a strong positive to say, hey, this is a way in which people are able to bring accountability to power to people who manipulate or abuse or do certain things, that there's a collective voice and influence that we can bring to bring accountability within society. Other people see it as a negative, that oftentimes it can maybe feel rash or unjust, that people are convicted in the court of opinion long before it's whether discovered whether things are true or not. Now, I'm not here necessarily to debate the positive or negative of cancel culture in the reality of social media or to expound on the reality or nuances of it. But I do think it's interesting that it highlights a tension that we feel of how do we actually engage the reality of mistakes, sin, injustice, unrighteousness as a community of people. When people mess up, do we just cancel them? Just like, oh, you're done, you're out. If not, how do we actually hold people accountable when there are injustices, when there are things, when there is unrighteousness, sin, whatever you want to call it? Because the truth and reality is those things happen. We, we know that we exist in a world where sin happens, where mistakes are way, made, where we do things, not someone else. You and I do things that hurt other people, that hurt ourselves, that we misstep, we mess up. And how do we actually like, engage that reality as a culture? 
right? I mean, the, one of the byproducts of cancel culture is we now have a society that lives with a high level of anxiety that somehow their missteps will become this public blast and they'll be canceled, right? We, we feel this weight and we wonder, how, how, what is the best way? Like, how actually are? Because I don't think the other opposite extreme of like, well, we just ignore everyone's messes, like, that doesn't seem to work well either. So how do we actually engage the reality of sin brokenness, hurt, harm, as a community. We've been in this series that we've called Conflicted for the last several weeks, where we're looking at a teaching of Jesus found in Matthew 18, where he gives instructions for his community of followers, for those that are marked by his kingdom, what we might call the church, right? The church really is a community of people who submitted themselves to Jesus as their king and trusted him as their savior. And in Matthew 18, Jesus gives an instruction to that community, to those people who have submitted under him as king of how they are to live together. He wants his kingdom community to be marked by shalom, by peace and harmony and flourishing for everyone. But he knows that his community will exist within a world of sin and brokenness. And that that sin and brokenness won't just be out there, but it'll also be in here. That there will be times where we take missteps, where we deviate from the way of the kingdom. And so he gives us then instructions in Matthew 18 of how we can live as a community of flourishing in the reality of the brokenness and sin that exists in us and around us. And he calls us to embrace what what I kind of have called throughout this series certain postures, to position ourselves in a certain way as a community in order for us to pursue flourishing for all in light of the reality around us. Jesus begins his teaching in Matthew 18 by calling us to a posture of humility, that the way in which we actually experiencing flourishing together is when we each are willing to position ourselves in a place of humbleness, not seeking our exaltation, but seeking the benefit of those around us. Next, Jesus calls us to a posture of repentance, that his community is to be a community that takes sin seriously, that we don't seek to live in such a way that causes others to stumble, and we take it seriously in our own lives, that we pursue repentance, turning from sin and embracing his ways. Last week, we saw how Jesus calls us to be a community that embraces a posture of pursuing love, that we pursue one another, we don't despise, we go after, we seek one another. In the same way that we have a God who leaves the 99 to pursue the one, we're to be a community that pursues one another with that sort of love and commitment. And today, Jesus is going to invite us to embrace another posture in order to be a kingdom of community that brings flourishing for all. This posture is a posture of correction and reconciliation. For Jesus, in a world full of sin and brokenness, if we're to be a community of his kingdom, then our relationships, the way we should relate, means we pursue repentance and reconciliation with each other. But how, how do we actually do that? Like I said, we, we know sin and brokenness exists, so how do we actually pursue each other in such a way where we can turn from that, where we can be reconciled, we can experience flourishing? 
Because we all probably recognize blasting one another on social media is probably not going to be the way to do that. But we do know that we need to pursue accountability and correction in such a way that where there is error, we can be brought back in alignment with the values of Jesus' kingdom. So how can we bring about flourishing when sin becomes present in our community? Well, in our passage today, Jesus gives us some really helpful, what I would label community guidelines that when followed, I think actually help all of us to be that sort of flourishing community, a community of shalom. And I use the term community guidelines very strategically. I use the term guidelines because I think some people have turned the verses we're going to look at almost into a sort of law that has been used to harm rather than help us be that sort of community. Like anything, what Jesus gives us here is godly wisdom, which we should seek to embrace But it's not necessarily a law that must be enforced. And we'll see why I say that. So it's important because there's going to be a lot of nuances that we need to bring, I think, to Jesus' teaching and understanding what he's pointing us towards today. Second, I use the term community strategically because I think many people have seen these verses as a way to just deal with interpersonal conflict or personal offenses. But I think what's in these verses is actually more than that. They're guidelines for how a local Christian community, so context, this church, right, should handle sin when it becomes present within our our context. So community guidelines that help us pursue repentance and reconciliation with one another to be a community of flourishing. So with that said, let's look at these verses together and kind of gain the wisdom that I think Jesus has for us. So he begins, if your brother sins against you. So right away, there's a couple things that I want you to note within the text. Jesus is shifting his focus here. What's not in the text in the original language, this was originally written in Greek, is actually the word but. It's meant to stand in connection with what came before. So Jesus had just been giving his community the reality that we're meant to have this posture or attitude of love and pursuit towards our fellow brothers and sisters in in Christ. But now he shifts that focus to deal with the issue of sin within the community. The word that Jesus uses here for sin is the Greek word hamartano, and it literally means to miss the mark. It'd be like if you were shooting at a target and you veered off center, which you would never do, right, Bjorn, because Marines never miss. So, but if you missed off center, right, you would miss the mark. You would miss the aim and the way. That's the word that's used for sin. Jesus has a way for us to live, the values of his kingdom. What he calls us to, to sin, is to miss the way of Jesus and to veer off course, to actually miss the mark. And the sin that Jesus is talking about here, I think, if we look at the context, is substantial sin. Not just trivial things, not just preferences, but issues of actual sin, right and wrong. What God says to do and what God tells us not to do. And Jesus is dealing in the context of spiritual family here. He's saying this is, if your brother or your sister sin against you, there's an inclusive nature to this that Jesus is saying. So this isn't just general, this is actually for the community of faith. And it's meant to deal with sin. So not just sin specifically, but actually sin in general within the community. So If you have um, another translation, so we primarily teach from the ESV. And so the ESV says, if your brother sins against you. If you have a different translation, maybe you have an NIV or the Net Bible or CSB, it actually removes the words against you. 
because the earliest manuscripts that we have of Matthew's gospel don't contain the words against you. It's likely that a scribe added those words as a way of explaining. So just quick Bible lesson, sorry to deviate, but just to help you because I think it's important. So when they copied Matthew's original letter into manuscripts to be distributed, right? They didn't have copy-paste. They didn't have a copywriter. They had to handwrite it. And sometimes scribes would add into the margins notes to explain what Matthew had recorded. And occasionally those notes would get added in to the copies and translations that we have. So what we try to do, though, to be as accurate as possible is to go back to the earliest manuscripts, because over time with more and more copies, things got added in. If we go back to the earliest manuscripts in order for our translation, and the earliest manuscripts don't have against you. So the high likelihood is Jesus' words actually were simply, if your brother sins. And so that's what he means, which means he's talking about sin that exists within the community in general, not just a personal offense, although that does relate here. And Jesus gives the language of possibility. If this might happen, it might not happen. It's almost in some sense a hypothetical, but he realized this is going to be a situation that you're going to deal with within the kingdom community, within the church. And so if it does, here's how you're going to approach it. So Get the scenario in your mind that Jesus is saying. If someone within your church family sins, this is how we should approach it, right? And he gives us, I think, three clear guidelines. The first is we're to pursue them individually. We're to pursue them individually. Look what he says. If your brother sins against you, or sorry, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So Jesus recognizes if you observe someone or experience an offense, so it can be both and, who's living outside of my way, then you are to take initiative and go to that person. And the text says, tell him his fault. Or another way you could say that is show them their error or their wrong. And he gives the qualification. You should do that between you and him alone. If he listens... Right? And that, that's the idea there, not just of hearing, but actually responding, of actually taking what you're seeking to bring to them, that they turn from their sin and come back to the way of Christ. Then Jesus says, you've gained your brother. That idea there is the idea of restoration, that there's restoration in their relationship with God, with you, with the community. So Jesus says, where there's sin, where somebody misses the mark, they're outside of the way, and you observe that or experience that, It's your job to then go to that person. You take the initiative. Go to them privately and individually to show them that they're missing the mark. And Jesus' focus is that the beginning of the way in which we do this, to bring correction within the community, is that we're supposed to begin by being person-honoring in our pursuit. That it's meant to be personal in the pursuit of restoration. Why? Why is that so important? right? That when there's a sin or infraction, you don't blast it publicly. You don't post on your social media about it. You don't go tell everyone in your community. You go to that person individually. Why? Well, on one hand, it protects the dignity of the person. We we all make mistakes. We all hurt each other. And sometimes that happens unintentionally, sometimes intentionally and unintentionally. But we seek to be the sort of community, if we're going to seek flourishing, that seeks to protect each other's dignity. That's at least the starting point. So when you go to them personally, you allow for repentance to happen personally before you have to move towards community. It protects their dignity. But it also protects 
the person maybe who has experienced that offense or observed that offense and the community. Too often sometimes we can, when we see or observe sin or experience sin, we can be prone to move towards things that actually hurt our community. They don't help our community. Gossip, slander, speaking out of turn, these are things that do not help build up the community of Christ. They actually can damage it. And so when Jesus says the starting point is to pursue individually, he's both protecting the person of the dignity who has sinned and missed the mark. He's also protecting the dignity of the person who's observed it and the community at large. He's saying this is the starting point. Now, remember, there's wisdom here. That's why I wanted to qualify that these are guidelines. It's not law. Because I think we need to recognize that there are sins and situations where this approach is not wise. So when there is a person where their safety is in question, or not in question, but in uh, danger, or if it's not appropriate to confront someone because of power imbalances or unique situations where it becomes unhelpful to them, I don't think what Jesus means is, you have to do this in order to deal with sin. For instance, if somebody, and and sadly I think this has been used by people at times to manipulate victims in order to say, well, your, your claim doesn't count unless you've gone to that person. But it is unwise, and there's no way that it is in Jesus' intention that if you've suffered abuse under someone or manipulation by someone in power over you, that the way in which that sin has to be dealt with is you have to go privately and confront that person. No way. No way. We would never encourage that, right? Somebody who suffered abuse does not have to go by themselves to confront their abuser. That, that is not, that's why Jesus is giving guidelines. He has wisdom. This isn't law. So can, I, can, I, can we have that nuance? So I just, I just want to help us have that clarity here. There's wisdom here, but let's have clarity. Now, the flip side of that is you can't also involve or avoid what Jesus calls us to because you just don't like awkward conversations. Right? I, I recognize it's awkward to go to someone and say, hey, I think, I think you really blew it here. I think you missed it. Just because you feel awkward, that doesn't give you a license to say, well, then I just go tell everybody else and I talk and I don't go to the person, right? So so recognize there's wisdom on both sides. We never want to put someone's safety in question when it comes to the way in which we deal with sin. We also don't want to avoid the wisdom that Jesus has because we just feel awkward about it. At the end of the day, I think what Jesus reminds us of is we want to be person honoring. That's the starting point. And we want to engage in such a way in which we seek to honor the person, both the person maybe who has been sinned against and the person who has committed the sin. That's why we want to uphold the dignity of each other. And the reality is that when it comes to sin, we're really good at self-deception. So we need each other to help bring correction in the areas that we often overlook. Maybe, maybe think of, of what Jesus invites us to do here a little bit like this. So um, how many of you have ever been driving down the road and you failed to check your blind spot? Don't admit it. Don't raise your hand. I don't want, you know. But you know, you know you're supposed to. You know when you're driving, it's like, I know I can't see this car if they're right here. But you get busy. You get distracted. You glance at the mirror. No one's there. And you start to move into the other lane. Now, the driver that's in the other lane that's in your blind spot that you can't see, right, they have two options at that point, right? 
warn you or suffer the consequences and damage that's about to result from your collision. What's the loving thing to do in that situation? You hit the horn, right? And then we get all flustered because we never like when someone honks at us. I don't know what it is about it, but if anybody honks their horn, we're immediately like, ah! Like, but, but, but right, like that's the loving thing to do, to say like you're in danger, you're outside of the lane, you're missing the way you're meant to drive, and you're putting the rest of us in danger as well. So, recorrect. Like we need that within our, we all have blind spots when it comes to our sin. We all have areas of our life that we, we misunderstand. We're good at self-deception. That's the nature of sin. And the loving thing in Christian community, when we observe someone in the reality of their sin or we experience a sin against us, is to be horn honkers. Is to be willing to say, hey, 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 I'm not doing this because I'm trying to slam you. I'm not trying to come down on you. But I think you're missing something here. I think there's something that you can't see, and this might be potentially destructive to your life, and it might bring harm to our community. I think if we were willing to be horn honkers early on when we observe these realities, we would actually save ourselves and our community from a lot of heartache. We don't have to go slamming someone. We don't have to work ourselves up. We just, in love, need to go and say, hey, I think, I think you missed the mark here. And so part of the way that we take a posture of correction and reconciliation is that we seek to pursue personal and personal, person-honoring correction in the hopes of restoration, right? The goal is always redemptive. You're going to see that throughout all of this. Jesus is not giving these guidelines as a harsh, he's giving these as a means of grace that helps all of us experience flourishing and redemption. So it's When you observe, when you read reality, when you experience sin within the community, be willing to pursue someone who sinned. Be willing to do it. I know it might be uncomfortable. You don't recognize how vitally it is important for their life and for the community as well. And I think if we take Jesus' words well with wisdom, the way we would primarily do that is privately into face-to-face conversations. Right? It's probably not good to be like, uh, shoot a text over like, hey, I think you really blew it last night. Like, it's probably good for us to, to, if we want to be love and honoring and dignifying, have the conversation. Don't whisper over here. Don't give subtle, passive-aggressive social media posts that vaguely talk about the issue, but I didn't say anything about them. Like, that's not, that's not the way we deal with sin within our community. All right, we go to each other personally, face-to-face. We invite each other for correction. The flip side of that is, right, so good rule of thumb, treat others as you would want to be treated. Second, be willing to receive correction. If we're embracing the first two postures that Jesus tells us to, humility and repentance, we will actually want to be people who are corrected, which means we want to invite where people see blind spots that we might not, I want someone to honk the horn because I don't want an accident. And we should want that for our lives as well. People who are willing to come and say, I think, I think you're missing it here. One commentator said on this, on this verse, a humble and loving spiritual brother or sister would want any overlooked sin against another to be brought to his or her attention so forgiveness could be sought and restitution made. We would want that because we want to flourish. We want to live in good relationships. We want to follow the way of the kingdom. And so we invite and are seek to be a willing of people who pursue one another for correction, but are also willing to receive it. And ideally, our desire is that this is how the majority of sin issues that happen within our church family are dealt with. 
But the reality is you and I can be stubborn in our sin. And Jesus knows that. And it's why he gives a second guideline. The starting point is pursue them individually. The second point is pursue them communally. Look what he says in verse 16. But if he does not listen, he does not heed your warning, he does not turn from the sin that he or she is in, then Jesus says, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three reasons. Right? So Jesus gives an, an instruction and then he gives a reasoning here. The instruction is, if someone won't listen to your warning, then the next guideline is take two people with you to confront them over the reality of their sin. And the idea here for Jesus is not like just two random people. It's not like you and you. Okay, let's go, right? The idea is here you want to find spiritually wise and helpful people, people who can, are likely maybe close to the person or have good spiritual wisdom, and the goal isn't to bring them together to show how right you are. The goal is that their mediative presence, that help in pursuing repentance and reconciliation together. And Jesus reasons for why he calls for that in Deuteronomy 19.15. That's what he quotes from when he says, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three risks. This was the legal precedent God set in Israel. That for someone to bring a legal accusation, it just wasn't my word versus them but that there was witness. Why was that true? And why does that matter for how Jesus calls his community to confront sin now? Well, because I think there's wisdom here in that it brings protection for everyone. It brings protection against the person in sin from facing false accusations, from knowing this isn't just somebody who's got a vendetta against me. They're out to get me. They're trying to make up the story or embellish Right, the idea of two or three witnesses is that you bring spiritually wise people in who are able to look into the situation and understand whether or not, yes, this person really is trapped in sin and this really needs to be dealt with. So there's protection for the person. There's protection for the person offended. That they don't have to keep going, 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 putting themselves in the situation of ignorance, rejection, suffering at the hands of someone who is obstinate in their sin. And there's protection for the community. Because in a moment, we'll see that there is a next guideline, and the community needs to know that spiritually wise people have looked into this, dealt with it, and taken the step to try to rectify the situation and the sin and call for repentance appropriately. So there's great wisdom here. But again, the goal in all of this is repentance and restoration. It's meant to be a redemptive reality that protects the person from manipulating the reality to excuse their sin. Maybe think of it like this. Um, I know this might shock many of you, but I was not the easiest kid growing up. I definitely got in my fair share of trouble, and I usually got in trouble for my mouth. I know that really shocks all of you. And unfortunately, in my childhood, unredemptive state, as I can look back on it now, I also sought to be one of those kids that was a master manipulator of my parents. And one of my strategies that I would use from time to time is I would try to pit my parents against each other, right? Like if I could isolate one parent and what they confronted me on in my disobedience, I would often, oh, but mom said, oh, oh, but dad was okay with this. He, it's not, they don't think it's really a big deal. So X, Y, and Z. I know none of you have ever tried this strategy, right? And so from time to time, what would happen is, 
my parents would have to come together to confront me in my disobedience. Because I knew when that came, all right, I can't out-manipulate them at this point. And it brought a weight to that reality. Because that, that's our natural bent. In our sin, we want to excuse our sin. We want to avoid it. We want to try to find reasoning for it. And sometimes we need the weight of parents. And in the Christian community, spiritual parents who can step in and say, hey, you're not okay here. You, you can't manipulate your way out of this. This is really an issue. And this is really hurting you and it's hurting others. And you need to turn from it and follow the way of Jesus. Jesus has already highlighted the seriousness of sin and the effect that it has, not only on our immediate community, but even our eternal reality and destiny. And sometimes having multiple people confront us can actually help us not turn towards manipulative taxes, to feel, tactics to feel the weight of our sin and to turn. They can help bring clarity to all of those who are involved. And so Jesus' guideline here isn't go get two people to hammer on this person. It's go get two people to be a mediative presence to help them see the air in truthfulness and invite them towards repentance and redemption. Ignoring issues of sin isn't loving. So we seek the wisdom of spiritual family to help us confront each other well in order that we all might turn from sin and experience the flourishing life God has for us. But, again... Sin can be a deceptive entity. We're masters of self-deception. And if we're not careful, we can remain in that sin even when confronted by a few other people. And when that's the case, Jesus gives us a third guideline. He says, at that point, pursue them congregationally. All right? This is what he says in 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus' instruction is here, clear here. Say to the church. And when he says church, he means the local assembly. That's what that word means. It means assembly, right? The, the local community under the lordship and authority of Jesus. So Jesus says, if someone even won't listen when two or three come and confront them on their sin, the next step is we're not blasting it publicly. We're not making it a spectacle for people to observe. The idea here is that you now involve the local church, its leaders and community in the hopes of bringing repentance and restoration. The goal here is for people to remain in fellowship. Certainly these are, is a severe step. We never hope that in our own sins, this is the reality that we have to get to. But the goal for Jesus always is redemption. It's for them to remain in fellowship, to turn from their sin, embrace the way of the kingdom. And so when sin rises to this level, yes, it's severe, but it also calls that it must be handled with wisdom and delicacy. Because the weight of the local church is actually important and significant in helping us not fall into the trap of sin and self-deception. And sometimes it takes the entire community to bring correction. One of the things that people who work in the reality of addiction recovery have seen that can be helpful when somebody is really trapped in the throes of addiction 
right, where, where they're in a place where they're harming themselves or potentially a harm to those around them, is one of the means that can be used to help that person is to hold what's known as an intervention, right? And in an intervention, you seek to gather people who are close to that person, right? And you often have an intervention specialist or someone who knows how to handle that situation wisely and with grace, and they seek to constructively express and to confront the person and constructively express their concerns in order that that person would turn from their destructive behavior and seek treatment. Because you recognize the danger they're in and your desire is a community. And the hope is that the weight and goal of the community will awaken that person to the reality of what they're in and the destruction that it's bringing. And the goal of the community and intervention is not condemnation. It's simply to communicate the severity in order to seek transformation, to invite that person to turn. I think what Jesus reminds us of, there are sins, true sins that embed themselves so deeply in our life and we walk in them in such a way that it can be hard to break free from. It's so much so that we, when confronted by an individual, we still remain committed to our sin. When confronted by several others, we still remain. And Jesus says, when that's the case, there might be an appropriate where you need to spiritually intervene, where you need to bring the weight of the community to bear, to help awaken that person to the reality of sin and invite them to turn and experience the life that Jesus desires for them. Our hope is that a sin or pattern of sin in our lives or your life would never get to this point. But if it does, wisdom would call for the weight of the community. And the way we would seek to practice that around here is we would always first try to bring the weight of the community in the most minimal way possible. Maybe a life group or a really significant group of close friends Right? We're not here to like blast your sin publicly or post somewhere. Right? There might be a time where we need to bring more, but the, the hope is we want to do that where we bring the weight of the community, the committed members of this community, to help people turn from their sin. That, that's never gotten to that point since the four years that I've been here, but I think this is what Jesus gives us is the weight to say, hey, if you will not repent, then we'll need to bring the weight to bear. And then he says, but even if they don't turn at that, even if they remain unrepentant, then treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. And those are very key words that Jesus' audience would have understood to say, treat them as someone who is outside the community of faith. But even in that, the posture for us doesn't change. Right? Jesus is not, these are not Jesus' words to say, cancel them. This is not Jesus' word to be like, they're dead, dead to me, done with you, you've gone too far, you're out. No, it says just recognize that their sin has gotten to the place that what they're displaying is they don't actually trust in the truth of the gospel. So treat them like you would anyone who doesn't believe in the truth of the gospel. Invite them to fight in Jesus, to repent and turn from their sin. Continue the posture, right? Remember, Jesus' posture towards Gentiles and tax collectors was one of love and care and to invite them into his way, to put their faith in him. And even the person who's writing this, Matthew, was a tax collector. So certainly Jesus' means isn't, okay, the posture then shifts, and now you're like, done, out, never to return. No, he's just saying they've reached the point, if they're unwilling, even when confronted by the weight of the local church, to treat them as one who does not genuinely trust in Jesus. 
which means love and pursue, but invite them back to the place of trusting in him as Savior for the forgiveness of their sins and submitting to him as Lord. So our posture doesn't change. But then Jesus, so Jesus gives us this process. But he wants to help us see, as he closes this, that what's vitally necessary and important for the health of our lives, the flourishing of our life in him, and the flourishing of us as a community is the local church. It is the local community. And he gives two very clear instructions to help us recognize why it's so important. The church is Christ's body on earth. It is where he is present and continues his ministry in the world. And the church is to be a people who are submitted under Christ's authority and carry his spiritual authority in the world, under his authority, not separate from it, under it, but are his expression of his authority in the world. This is why Jesus gives two instructions here in the role of the church. You see the first one in 18, truly I say to you, when Jesus says truly, that's the word I mean, he's pay attention. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This word and language that Jesus uses here is reminding us that the church plays a role in determining whether we are living in alignment with the reality of the gospel and his kingdom or whether we are outside the way. That there is an authority that has been given to the local community, both in the reality of its leadership and the community at whole, that is meant to help us understand when we have strayed from the way of Jesus and when we are in alignment with him. So it is a role that the church plays in our lives. Jesus gives them and gives us that authority. The second thing he reminds them is that his presence exists within that local community under his authority. Right? Verse 19, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, I've heard these verses referenced a lot in terms of the reality of prayer. Maybe you have if you've been around the church. People pray, God, we're so thankful there's two or three of us here, that your presence is here. And there's certainly a truth in that reality, right? And there's multiple other scriptures that remind us we have the presence of God in us by his spirit. When we gather, he's here with us. That's why we sang the song earlier. But Jesus uses this verse not in the context of this general presence, but in recognizing that where his church gathers in agreement, where there is alignment under his authority, he is genuinely there. He is present and his authority is there. So when the church agrees as a community to call for the repentance and correction of those who have turned from Christ, it is Jesus who is calling to that person to turn and come back. It is his authority that is confronting them. We are a delegated authority. Now, Jesus says that comes in his name. So there's the reality here, and it reinforces that we're not just doing this rogue, but that the church is seeking to do this in alignment with Christ, his kingdom, his word. And I think Jesus says that because it's meant to protect us against rogue, manipulative, and ungodly leadership that might use their authority or might use the community to ostracize and harm. But where we're in alignment with his word, where there is agreement within the church that calls for repentance, what Jesus wants us to recognize is his presence is there and his authority is there as well. And that should bring a weight to the role that the community plays. Maybe think of it like this. So occasionally I'll leave my house and from time to time I've done this. I have, I have several kids and I'll leave one of them in charge. 
right? I'm like, hey, you know, mom and I are going out. We're going to hand, like, you know, so-and-so is in charge while we're gone. Now, what do I expect when I leave? Well, one, I expect the person I've left in charge to continue to lead the household that's in alignment with our values, the way in which we are, the rules of our house, right? So if they go rogue, that authority that I've given them, that's not valid anymore. But if they're in alignment and one of their siblings chooses to disobey and they call them out and say, hey, you know mom and dad don't like that. And they're like, ah, who cares? I don't need to listen to you. Who are they rejecting at that point? Their sibling? No, 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 no. They're rejecting me. And so you know when I show up, now it's going to be a different story. Jesus has left his church as his body. We are his delegated authority on the earth. And he expresses that in local churches all over the place. And he's given guidelines for leadership, and he's given us his word to help all of us live in such a way to be a community of his kingdom and to flourish. And the church is meant to exercise authority collectively in alignment with him, right? If the church goes rogue, that invalidates the authority. But where there is alignment, what Jesus wants you to see is when the church is submitted under my authority and in line with me, that's my authority. That's, that's not someone else. That's me. And when you turn from that, you're turning from me. That's why he brings this reality to bear. And if we actually connect that truth of what Jesus is saying, I think the takeaway that we would have is we would have a much higher prioritization of the local church than we often do. That if this is really the body of Jesus, it's really the place that he's present, then we would prioritize our connection and relationship with this local community. Because the truth of the matter is you cannot experience spiritual flourishing in the way of Jesus disconnected from a local church. You can try, and certainly many of you do. But if we take what Jesus says here, we recognize there is a role the local church is meant to play in helping bring correction to our lives because we are prone to self-deception in our sin to help us realign and experience more of the flourishing of Jesus. We need each other. We need each other individually. We need each other communally. We need each other congregationally. If we're experienced the flourishing life that Jesus has for all and we're to be witnesses of his kingdom here and now, we need one another. And the process Jesus is trying to get us to see is look around because your brothers and sisters are vitally important to your spiritual flourishing and you're vitally important to theirs as well. None of us get it right. We, we all need each other. We all need correction. Your pastors need correction. That's why we mutually submit to one another as elders. Any of our fellow elders have the opportunity to call me on the carpet, to deal with my life. We ask each other the questions we need to the best we can. And you need that as well. We are not perfect. We're all broken. That's the reality. And we're all prone to sin. But God is so gracious to us that he doesn't leave us in that reality. He does not want us to experience the destructive of reality of sin in our life. And so one, he gives us Jesus first and foremost. Jesus comes to deal with our sin, to forgive us of our sin, to reconcile us to our God and reconcile us to one another. That's the glorious truth of the gospel. 
that we don't have to experience the destructive reality of sin because Christ came to deal with our sin. But even when we're prone to fall astray, to miss the mark, to turn from our sin, God has not only given us Christ, but he's given us one another to bring correction. And when we pursue what he gives us here in the community guidelines that he points us towards, it helps all of us. Man, I hope we're willing to pursue each other when we miss the mark. I hope you're willing to pursue me and to say, hey, I think you're missing it here. And if we did more of that, our community would flourish. We'd be the sort of people that would turn from the destructive force of sin and experience the flourishing life that God has. So overall, I think that we see through this that Jesus desires his community to be a place of correction. To correct and to help one another in our relationship with God, ourselves, each other, the world. So we should be the sort of community that takes a posture of correction, a posture of repentance, a posture of restoration, a posture of reconciliation. We don't cancel each other. We don't write each other off. We don't seek to bring punishment to each other. We seek to be a people who seek flourishing for one another. And we follow these guidelines out of love. These are guidelines of grace in order to help us be that sort of people. And my prayer is that we would see these verses as a wise way to pursue that vision so we could continue to be that sort of community. In fact, let me pray for us now. So Father, we just pray right now and ask that you would help what you give us as wisdom here to be true of us as a community. We're thankful for the truth and reality that you, you know our proneness to sin. You know how broken we are. And you didn't leave us helpless to figure that out on our own. You pursued us in love and sent your son to die for us so we could be reconciled to you. And even then, when we still are prone to sin, you've given us your community, one another to help us to know more of your way and more of your kingdom in our life. And so we stand in this moment just praising you for the grace that you've shown us. And even as we prepare to sing this song that just is a celebration of that grace, of our brokenness, but your grace over us, I pray that you would just work in our hearts to remind all of us of that truth of what we have in Christ, that we would seek to be a people who constantly turn time and again to him, even in our sin, trusting in him, experiencing your grace, and being conformed more to his image. So Spirit, we ask that you would do your work now, even as we respond to your word. We love you, and it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.